Welcome back to another episode of Invest in Your Future. I'm your host, Kenny, CEO of Corona Group Corporation. Today, I have a special guest. I have uh, Kira Golden here, CEO of DirectSourceWealth.com, a graduate of George Washington University, former financial advisor of uh, Edward Jones. Kira is a powerhouse when it comes to finance and real estate. She's a real estate investor herself. Kira started her first real estate actually investing at the tender age of 18. Now is a massive international portfolio that includes vacation rentals and large multifamily commercial buildings all around the world, including properties in Washington State, Colorado, Arizona, Illinois, Puerto Rico, and France. Kira and her team at Direct Source Wealth help investors build strategies to replace their earned income with passive income. She's been featured on CBS, Forbes, Get Rich, multiple podcasts. I mean, she's she's a powerhouse. She's, she's known around. So I'm, I'm glad to bring you on, Kara. Thank you very much for taking the time. You want to introduce yourself, Kara? Thank you. Um, it's hard to follow that. That was an amazing introduction. Um, yeah, I mean, Kara Golden, real estate investor, mompreneur. I've got two amazing kids, three and a half and six months, and just enjoying uh, making a difference for, for people. Thank you, Kara. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're on vacation down in Puerto Rico, so I appreciate you taking the time. Um, so I wanted to really start from the beginning. Um, I know you, you started at 18. Um, you want to give us a little hint on how, how did you find out about real estate? How did you get into the game and kind of how did your first deals look like? Yeah, I mean, I started, uh, I was an infomercial junkie. I love watching good salespeople on an infomercial. And uh, Robert Kiyosaki used to have a, a midnight spot uh, before he, I think before Rich Dad Poor Dad was even written, but definitely around that time. And so he's really the one that, I mean, he was selling stocks and stock investing at the time. Uh, but uh, I kind of followed his career. And when he started to talk about real estate, it, it piqued my interest. And, um, so, you know, I, I, quite frankly, all I can do is say that I kept asking real estate agents and mortgage people, you know, how to do it, what to do, and uh, eventually found some people who were willing to take me seriously and, and teach me and show me, and, and thank God they, they set me on a trajectory I'm very grateful for. Wow, that, that's, that's great. So you just, you seeked out the people that were in the industry and just kind of try to get tutoring and, and mentoring from them to kind of start your own, your own, your own uh, business, right? Yeah, and I would say, you know, the biggest thing in my early years in particular, but even now, um, you know, I hear no a lot. Um, and I think if I stopped the first, you know, 10 or 20 or 100 times someone told me no, um, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish what I've accomplished. Um, but I just, you know, I keep thinking, okay, if not that way, well, then what do I do? How do I do it? And uh, I don't take no personally. I just look at how to get better and, and try again. Wow. Wow. That's that's a great point, especially for those listening out there. She did not give up if, even if that, after the first five or six no's. That's, that's actually very impressive because a lot of people do give up actually after the first no because they don't think that they have the will to keep going, especially when they hear that first no. That's great. Right. Um, so could you could you explain a little bit about your first deal? Was it a single family? Was it an apartment? How, how did it single look? Single family. Okay. Yeah, single family. I wish I had had the gumption to start bigger, but didn't know what I didn't know at the time. Sure. So it's been about 10 years doing single family. Um, and it was a little house in Mesa, Arizona. And literally, you know, the real estate agent and I looked on the MLS for the cheapest five houses. And at the time, there was nothing in Phoenix under 200K except for these two houses. Um, and so we went and checked them out. I bought, bought one of the two. I actually put offers on both um, and uh, got both accepted and then had to kind of figure out which one through due diligence and, and purchase one of them. 
Okay. And how, how did you come up with the original capital to, to put down on that, on that on those houses? Yeah, good question. Um, so I, you know, I'm a saver. I'm a long-term investor and a saver by nature. So even just as a kid, the lunch money, birthday, babysitting money, um, I saved it. And, it, uh, you know, I think I was probably about uh, 11 or 12 when I first started getting interested in stock trading. And uh-huh. um, my father opened at my request a, a custodial trading account and gave me access to trade. So on E-Trade, I was just uh, buying and selling stocks. This was in the 80s, you know, dot-com boom. And I was like learning technical trading. And um, and I grew my little $3,000 to about $10,000 by the time I was 18. And, and that was the down payment. Wow, that's impressive. You started at age 12. That's impressive. No, at age 12, we're playing with toys and you're, you're talking about stock investing and checking out and building a nice little capital base for yourself from 3000 10000 that's very impressive Kira. that's very nice well i appreciate that it's not as impressive as it sounds it's taken me almost 35 years to figure out how to play with toys and have fun uh, you know we're, we're all born with different compulsions and mine just happens to be investing but, no um, you start you, know, you started at a very early age that's actually very impressive and in terms of in terms, so you took that you took that first deal, and was it a fixer upper? Was it in good shape? I mean, how did you um how did how that deal work for you? Yeah, let me be candid. Uh, it was in great shape when I bought it, and I proceeded to manage it into the ground. Um, really? <laughs> I didn't, you know, I uh, yeah, I didn't know anything about you know cash flow reserve, capital expended, you know, capex reserves, any of that kind of stuff. So. Uh, you know, I, I bought it, um, we had tenants in it, and, or I had tenants in it, and, you know, I kind of over a few years realized that the thing was just falling apart. You know, the tenants were really hard on it, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know how to manage the cash flow that was coming in to make sure I was reinvesting in the property and growing the value and protecting it. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I definitely learned that lesson on the first deal. I still own that house. I've done a full renovation on it since multiple times, um, but the, but the first, first, you know, five or six years, you know, I really just milked it for cash flow, mm. um, and then I started to realize that now you gotta gotta put some money back into these things if you want to keep the value there and keep good quality tenants. Sure, sure. That's actually a great point for listeners because a lot of my listeners are blue collar people who might have one or two houses or maybe have zero, but they need to understand that that first one should probably be the one that helps you kind of start that stepping stone, so you can't really spend that cash flow and you got to keep it in great shape in order for the tenants to to be able to stay. Correct. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you know. Uh, yeah, you, you keeping keeping those good tenants and building a reputation of being a good landlord. That that's, that re- your reputation is really the big thing in the business. That's, that's the thing you can't replace. Sure, sure. And you were self managing that one, correct? Yeah, yeah. So not only was I self managing it, I closed to purchase that property when I was in East France. So the property was in Arizona. I lived in France, and I was I had to uh, track down a notary to purchase it. So I did my first lease up remotely. Uh, which was a really interesting learning. So, you know, my property's in Arizona, and I and I didn't have a property manager. So I was posting on Craigslist and having to and using technology, even gosh, back back in the day, uh, to get tenants access to go see the property and doing leases remotely and, and all of that. Wow, that's actually interesting. We're gonna get, we're gonna get to that, especially le- learning how to um, leverage technology for your business. Um, because you're right now you're in Puerto Rico and you still run a nice little empire of a thousand plus doors. I mean that's that's impressive for people who want to move up to that level. Especially myself, also I'm I'm learning from you. Um, so so now you moved on to um 
you know, you, you got a couple of deals under your belt. When did you start um, learning to, you know, to start looking into like commercial buildings and uh, larger units? When did you start looking into that? Yeah, really only, uh, fair, I would say fairly recently. I mean, I did my first commercial deal in 2014. Okay. Um, and that was, that, that was still pretty small. I mean, it was just, uh, it technically wasn't even commercial. It was just a multifamily. It was four, four units. Well, when I bought it, it was supposed to be six. It turned out it was four. That's another story. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, then I did, uh, with, with some co-investors with a group, we did 30 units, um, and that, you know, our next deal was 315, and then realized that focusing on those larger assets, definitely the, the better way to go, and um, better economy of scale, better professional quality managers, mm. um, and so, you know, that's what we've really been focusing on since then. Nice, nice. So in terms of, I mean, so what made you go the multifamily route instead of, let's say, like commercial building, single tenant building? Like what made you stay in that commercial side in terms of multi-units? Um, it's what I know. Okay. Um, you know, I, I can really, you know, I have, I think, a, a stronger skill than average in um, attracting tenants, putting tenants in a property, marketing, uh, you know, multifamily residential. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, we're in our platform. We are very focused on trying to diversify across multiple asset classes by partnering with other operators who know other verticals. Um, so, in fact, you hit the nail on the head. I'm very interested in doing some more industrial or uh, you know single tenant commercial kind of kind of properties. We have we have one right now, and you know it's great. It's triple net lease, and we love it. We would like to do more. Yes, I'm actually looking myself at a single fam, uh, single unit um, commercial building myself because it's actually very interesting in terms of how how much you really don't have to worry about the you know the taxes, insurance, and you know everything else just comes to you. Um, so, so are, would you consider a syndicator right now? Um, well, we work with our co-investment group. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually an interesting question. I mean, when I first started working with our investors, I never heard the word syndication, right? Mm -hmm. And over time, you know, we're just continuing to study the regulatory space and figure out, you know, exactly where we fall in mm. that. Okay. So 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 right now you just partner with people and you put you both put in some equity and you both purchase the, the deal. So everyone kind of splits everything half, correct? Yeah, not in half necessarily, but, okay. but pro rata to capital contributions, etc. Sure. Sure. Yep. sure. Great. And so could you tell us a little bit about like your like your process, your deal origination, how you find deals, deal analysis, and how you close? Yeah, um, I mean, deal sourcing is definitely relationship-driven. Okay. Um, you know, we pride ourselves on being a good buyer and working well with our sellers. So we have uh, multiple transactions we've done with the same seller. You know, after, uh, after we do a first deal with a seller, they often uh, come back to us, uh, you know, Maybe sometimes it's a look, a free look period before something goes to market and, and stuff like that because you know we just we've done what we say we're going to do and sellers like that. Um, so you know that's our, our primary way of sourcing deals has been through building relationship. Mm. Um, and uh, you know we we have a pretty extensive underwriting process. And again, because we focus on multifamily, we involve in our underwriting process early. Uh, our asset managers, our property managers, our lender. Uh, so we really work with our partners uh, from the get-go to make sure that we're all on the same page and, 
and that we all believe that the goals on that property are realistic and achievable and that everyone has bought into achieving them and, and then we, we set out to do what we intend to do. Sure, that's that's actually great. And in terms, I mean, right now, I know you guys are obviously on a larger scale looking at uh, 100 plus units. Um, what would you say for the average Joe or average Jane on how to get started in order to kind of, you know, move up to your level? I mean, would you say they start with a single family of four units? I mean, how would you say they start? Yeah, I mean, to me, how someone should start is so specific to their circumstances. But mm -hmm. what I will say from, from my history, I wish I had gone back and started with some bigger deals. Um, I wish I'd started with deals over $5 million. Um, and the reason is that, um, you know, if you think about the, the anatomy of a deal, your largest partner typically is going to be your lender, right? They're going to be taking down 65 to 85% of your capital table. And, you know, over 5 million is really when the lenders, the big boys, the quality of big boys and girls, I'm not going to bias that gender wise, but, uh, you know, the quality lenders, professional lenders, um, that's where it's worth their effort to look at doing a deal. Um, and so as we have done bigger deals, we've really been able to find higher quality uh, capital partners. And, and again, I just emphasize, you know, your relationship with your lenders is it's huge. You want to be a good partner to them and you want to find good lender partners. Yes. I'm actually kind of going through the same process right now. I started myself with a couple four units and uh, I'm moving up to large units myself and I'm learning that it's it sounds so crazy, but it's actually easier to find financing for the larger deals, which is so interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that until yeah. I started looking into the larger deals because for them, I'm realizing that it's the same amount of work, same amount of paperwork for $1 million deal to $5 million deal. So they'd rather have the bigger deals than the smaller deals. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, Now, for your deals right now, um, I know you're looking at some, uh, are you looking at like B, C class? Are you looking at some value add, you know, um, properties? Or are you looking for like A class, you know, top of the line stuff? Yeah, no, we're definitely more of a value add kind of buyer. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we, we're buy and hold value-focused mm -hmm. group. That's what we like to do. Nice. And then when you purchase the, the property, I mean, are you right away ripping the roofs off, trying to force that appreciation, or are you guys giving it some time? to? I mean, how, how you guys do it when you, when you finally close that deal? It really depends deal by deal. Mm. Um, you know, we, we love kind of low-cost value add, of course, if we can go in and slap a coat of paint on something and... Um, you know, clean something up and, and you know bump the rents fifty or hundred bucks. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, but my favorite thing to come across is actually where the seller before us did the deep value add, right? So they bought maybe a vacant property or a or a really really badly run property, and they went in and they did the heavy lifting, mm -hmm. and we can come in and do the last ten percent, right? So they might have of two hundred units, they might have. 20 that are at market and they've proven that they can get that market rent but they haven't worked through the whole system yes um and where we can come in with better capital terms better better financing terms and then buy and, and, and just do that light lifting at the end um to me that's the sweet spot where we can add a lot of value uh with a lot less uh, effort. Yeah. So we, we like to look for those kinds of deals. Nice. Nice. That's actually a great idea. And in terms of uh, speaking of markets, what markets right now that interest you? What what, do you, what kind of markets are you looking at? I mean, 
mean, I'm really favorable on Puerto Rico right now. I mean, I feel like it's the final frontier or the last frontier. You know, most of the U.S. has just gotten really gobbled up, uh, and Puerto Rico still is ripe with opportunity. Um, having said that, you know, we're we're looking at a deal right now in Indiana. We're looking at another deal in Arizona. Uh, you know, we we are still looking stateside, um, and we're we're finding some stuff. Um, but we're having to do a lot more underwriting per deal that we buy now than we did a year ago and, and multiple times more now than, than we did five years ago to find a good deal in the States. Wow. Yeah, I noticed that the, that the cap rates are so low and um, it, it seems like every every good deal gets taken before it even hits the market. Um, so speaking of investors, wh- where do you guys find your investors and how do you how do you source the, the capital to to find the partners that you need to work with to um, to, to take down those big deals? with for a while. Um, in fact, I was telling another partner or another podcast interviewer that you know, we're going through the process of actually shrinking our investor group. Um, so you know, we don't, we're not taking on a ton of new people. Um, we do every once in a while. Someone's a really good fit. Um, and typically that's from a referral, right, from, some, from somebody who's been working with us for a while and, and you know, would like to make a warm introduction to somebody. And we'll, we'll always take those phone calls. We want to take good care of our investors, um, you know, friends and family and relationships. Sure. Nice. And in terms of when, when you get a deal, how does your due diligence look like in terms of, um, you know, sourcing the right deal, making sure the deal fits your criteria? What, what are you guys looking for? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, again, we're buying home mm-hmm. and we're very cash flow focused. So cash flow focused. we are looking for things that can produce you know, so let's call it a six or eight percent cash on cash return pretty quickly, you know, within the first year, let's say, uh, and a 10 percent cash on cash return, you know, shortly after that, uh, you know, that's what we're underwriting towards. That's what we're hoping to achieve uh, when we when we're looking at a deal. We're seeing if we think it can do that. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously we want to see some upside where we can add value. But if we can bump the cash flow, then that creates the upside value as well. Nice, nice. So you're looking for, I mean, your numbers right now, strictly, if the, if it's producing cash flow, you look at it. If it's not producing any cash flow, you just let it pass, correct? More or less. I mean, every once in a while, I'll see a shiny object. You know, there's there's often times these deals that you just, you got to look at. But, but generally, we're pretty disciplined about focusing on that cash flow. Yes, same here. I mean, I think every investor is kind of the same way. Um, and in terms of, right now, you said you're looking around six to eight cap. Is that correct? Cash on cash. Cash and initially. cash. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. Okay. And in terms of, um, do you do you care about vacancy? Do you care about, you know, um, you know, fifty, sixty percent occupied, or do you, are you looking a little higher? I mean, what, what are you looking for in terms of the building itself? Yeah, I mean, because we use more traditional debt, yes. um, we're, you know, we're typically looking for something that's you know, 80% or better occupied. Okay, got it, got it. And if someone wanted to get started with you or, or your team at um, Direct Source Wealth, um, what kind of capital would they need to start with in terms of um, to be able to, jo- to join your investor group or to be able to get some kind of uh, return on their capital? Yeah, you know, capital is less of our focus. It's really more about making sure there's that fundamental alignment of interest okay. that, you know, our, um, you know, the kinds of deals that we do are, are right for them and, and that we 
kind of share, there's so many different investment philosophies and, you know, we just want to understand that investor's investment philosophy and make sure that we're doing the services we're providing fit in their, in their grand scheme. Mm. Um, you know, the t- typical investment, I would say at this point is about 200,000 on yes. average. Um, okay. Per investor, but but that that can vary. You know, it just depends on on the specific project or the particular investor. Got it, got it. And um, I know for a fact that you work with a great team, and you have a, a lot of people on your team. Yeah. Could, could you talk a little bit about you know how to build your team and how to get started, especially for someone who's starting from zero or someone who's maybe trying to get into larger deals? How would you source that team, and what kind of people you need on that team? Yeah, I ain't gonna lie, it's hard. Um, it's, it's, it's probably for me, the the biggest challenge in the business, you know, because you can't grow if you're, if you're your limiting factor, you have to rely on other people, you have to build a team. Um, and it's taken years um, of, you know, being tested and having the relationships tested. I would say one of the biggest things I've learned is start slowly. I mean, gosh, you know, the the same advice in any relationship, right? Start slowly, see who people are. Uh, see how they perform under pressure. You know, so maybe that means starting with somebody as a contractor before you bring them in as an employee or starting with somebody on a joint venture or a project before you start talking about, you know, going out and taking over the world together. Um, you know, even if you really click and you think, this man, this is the one, I'm going to go build my business with this person, you know, just remember to, to just take your time and really see because I've had people surprise me both ways, people I thought, you know, we're ride or die kind of people and we were going to be together forever and, and, you know, they're not around. And I've got people who, you know, I was kind of not sure about and they stick it out and they, they go through the ups and the downs and they, they're problem solving, they're solution oriented and mm. they're hardworking. So sure. time, it's all about time. Sure. Our time. That's that's a great that's a great point to the listeners is just take your time, um, pick your team wisely, obviously, and just have people that you can tr- rely on and trust because obviously that's what comes down to um, if especially if you're doing deals and partnerships, they have to be able to be reliable because if they if you call them and they don't pick up their phone, it's tough to get stuff done. Would you say the same? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I'd say another thing I've learned is um, you know, it, we're entrepreneurial. You're entrepreneurial. I'm entrepreneurial. Most of the people listening to your podcast are probably entrepreneurial. Yes. And one of the problems with that is that we tend to then want to hire other entrepreneurs, which is a giant mistake. Um, wow. We need to, you know, we need to work with other people who are counterbalancing to what we bring to the table. So really knowing ourselves, what our strengths and weaknesses are, and then finding other people. And then one of the things I've really been working on lately is. Um, slowing down enough to give really good, thorough instruction, not micromanaging about how to do the job, but being really, really clear about what I want to see achieved and when I want to see it achieved. Um, Because I tend to assume that other people are going to be entrepreneurial like me and they're going to decide the problem, find the answer, go work the problem, solve it. And, you know, typically, you know, the kind of great staff that's going to build it build a good company is actually going to really need your leadership as an entrepreneur. Yes. I'm, I'm learning that the hard way myself. I've gone through about maybe three or four CPAs and accountants because I've been trying to go through the virtual assistant and virtual, you know, um, VAs. And I'm finding it hard to just get exactly what I'm looking for because if the details and the instructions are not clear, it seems like I just get, you know, half work or I'm trying to find the best right. deal. And I'm realizing, and I don't know if, you, if it's the same with you, but you actually get what you pay for. So in terms oh, of, yeah, yeah I'm learning. Well, not always true. I, 
paid a hundred thousand dollar a year for an accountant and got crap work too. Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. So you, you know, yeah, you, you do get what you pay for in the sense that if someone isn't quality enough to charge well, yes. a baseline. Um, but then, you know, the other thing is sometimes you can pay for the brand and you're not getting what you need there either. So you really just gotta gotta be very very clear. Mm. Um, no matter who it is. Sure, sure, definitely. I mean, that, that's I'm, I think that's what everyone goes with, especially when you're trying to build a team. You just make sure the people that you're working with, obviously, are trustworthy, but also they're fair and reasonable in terms of price and quality. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say in terms of because I know for a fact you you bring on you bring on uh, capital from investors and you try to bring them that passive income. Could you talk a little bit about how you can create that for them, especially you know people are trying to find freedom? Um, you're, you're saying. For passive investors? Yes, yeah, so but people want to be passive in terms of passive and want to create yeah. that passive income. Yeah, so, you know, in our entity structures, there's a general partner, someone like us who runs a deal, and a limited partner who is, you know, what people call a passive investor. Um, you know, the, the, the term passive investor is interesting. We can dive into that later. But, but essentially, they're not, you know, they're not responsible for day-to-day -day management or operations or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and typically, you know, they're entitled to some sort of preferred return before we're making any sort of, um, you know, fees on our end, and um, you know, or not any sort. We, we we have certain fees that get charged regardless, and then certain fees that are success based. And you know, the whole um, you know, there's, there's different Structure. structures. But, yes. Um, yeah, but the, you know, they get they get their cash flow, they get their distributions um, just based on the capital they put in. There's not really an expectation of them doing you know manual labor or work or monitoring the project, other than just you know staying on top of financials and the regular reporting. Yes. And I realized, especially when I started working for myself, how important to have, you know, rentals that bring in, um, you know, mailbox money, they call it, or checks and checks in the mail. Because I realized, I mean, early on, I'm glad is that you can only earn so much money. Um, could you speak a little bit about that in terms of the difference between earn and passive? Because a lot of people here don't have passive income or just think that a job is the only way they can make money. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's a huge paradigm shift when you start to realize that you know the most so people talk about the most important uh, you know you charge for an hour and your time is is so valuable right and you, what you don't want to do is just be trading your time for dollars you yes. want to build a base that you can leverage and and start to create passive cash flow where you don't have to to train your, to train your time and you know I'm a single mom and that was really important to me because you know I thought geez if something happened to me if I was sick if, if one of my kids was sick I don't want to have to be worried about you know calling in and taking a day off work to be with my child sure. um you know and and so for some people that's about living some lifestyle dream and for me passive income is really about the freedom um focus on my priorities mm, yes freedom that's that's the thing i'm chasing myself is just being able to free being able to be free to do anything you want like right now yourself you're in puerto rico you still run an empire i mean that's right there that's like the dream that everyone dreams about being on the beach with a laptop and a cell phone and still be able to get the money that, that's that's care that's where everyone wants to be so could you give us kind of like maybe a little tutorial on how we can get to where you are right now i mean obviously you're a little bigger right now but can anyone do it? Can anyone get to the level where you are? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone can. Um, you know, I think what it takes mm. is um, 
not quitting. I mean, it really is that simple. There's been a lot of reasons and a lot of times and a lot of opportunities to, to walk away. Um, and especially when I realized, you know, like just going back to that first single family home and I realized, oh God, you know, I should, I should, I should have done this differently, right? I should have, you know, had a CapEx savings account or I should have, you know, and you could beat yourself up with the should have, um, or you could even talk yourself out of ever even trying, right? Mm. You can think of all the things that could go wrong and, and never try. The fear. And yeah, I, the fear. Yeah, and I, I think at the end of the day that that's been my strength, I guess, is that, you know, I, I recognize that I'm willing to learn as I go, mm. um, and, I, and I cling to the fact that, you know, if I operate honestly and transparently with integrity, that any problems that arise can be solved. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you, you take it on and you do it mm. um, because otherwise you could just, you could just scare yourself away from, from ever doing anything. Sure. Sure. Actually, that's a great point because a lot of people are afraid to even pull that trigger on just even the first deal. Um, sure. what would you say, like, because I, I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes. I know the people I've interviewed before have made a lot of mistakes. What would you say the biggest mistake you've made um, in terms of your career right now, in terms of your, your, um, your, 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 how you run your business right now? What's the biggest mistake in terms of if you can go back and change it? Um, you know, I, I, I think early on when we, you know, when you start, uh, there's a sense, or for me at least, there was a sense of like urgency. Um, if I could go back and give myself a tranquilizer <laughs> and just say, look, you know, you're doing the right thing, work it, work it steady, but don't feel so urgent, right? Because when you get wrapped up in urgency, it's just easier to, to, to spin your wheels and, and waste that valuable time you're trying to create, um, either in worry or in pressure. And, you know, so really just being in the flow of what is and, and, staying in that flow, um, staying present with whatever you're doing at the time. If I'm working, I'm working. If I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids. If I'm with my friends, I'm with my friends. And not letting sort of the pressure or urgency drive my action. Mm. So kind of just be where you are and focus on what you need to focus on so that way you don't you don't feel like you need to multitask on multiple things. Yeah, mm. yeah. Or same thing, like not feel like you have to do a deal because, you know, early on in my career, I, I was easily convinced that if I didn't do that deal, it was going to go away and I'd never see another good deal again. You know, that yeah. was the deal. That was the deal that was going to make my career. And, um, and quite frankly, those deals that I did under a sense of pressure, those have been some of the hardest and most difficult ones to navigate through that have had the most issues. Wow. And the ones where I really took my time and didn't feel pressured, those have really performed quite well. Nice. Nice. That's great. And in terms of, I mean, I know right now you said you're in Puerto Rico. Could you talk a little bit on terms of how you leverage technology and how you run your business a little bit so that people can learn how to, they don't have to do everything. They can use technology. They can use people. They can use um, different facets to be able to control a large empire like you do. Yeah. I mean, we are such a lucky generation that we have so many resources at our disposal. Um, you know, we've got, a, I've got a, virtual uh, manager who, who's she's phenomenal and does our uh, all of our Airbnb correspondence um, you know and, and she's in South America you know and, and we use an online platform for that mm. um, you know there's you know automating things through automatic text and, and email follow-up and just systems and project management tools I mean, there's there's just so many I can't even name them all but um, 
you know, integrating those have been amazing. I mean, we have a fairly small staff, I think, for the uh, amount of work we accomplish, and a lot of that's because we're very technology-focused in what we do. That's that's what's interesting, is the fact that I was very interested in the fact that you have properties in France and Puerto Rico and just different states, and it very it's very intriguing to learn how, how first of all, how you acquire those and you live in a different state or a different country, but then also how you're managing. I mean, so you're telling me that all your management is ran through one person in South America? For our short-term uh, Airbnb rentals, she manages the booking. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, for example, the property in France used to be a long-term rental, and I did have a management company on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Uh, We've made it into a short-term rental, so we have, you know, a local cleaning person and handyman. You know, so we use, we use programs. We use, um, you know, I, I use Care.com, and there's another one that I, honestly, I don't want to mention because they've been so, so terrible. And actually, I'll mention the opposite. I use Handy.com. <laughs> I would not recommend using them. Okay. Um, yeah, they were, they have... Uh, you know, they, they they charged me when they had no one show up. I've never seen that 150 bucks back. It was only 150 bucks. The point was, there's just no integrity in the platform. Mm. Um, but you know, and that happens sometimes when you use tech platforms. But um, uh, but there's then there's other other opportunity. You know, we care like I said, care.com or uh, Upwork or you know, which I think sure. has a different name, virtual assistant. You know, all of those. Um, technologies and before those all existed I was doing things remotely but just through you know Craigslist and Facebook and you know uh, and sometimes it's just about being creative and, and saying you know hey I've got this property and looking up the neighbor and calling the neighbor and giving the neighbor your phone number and saying hey if you know if, please let me know you know I don't want you to think I'm some absentee landlord that doesn't care and you know mm. so it's a combination of technology but also just old school business practices, like sure. being in communication with people, connecting sure. with your neighbors, and making sure people know who you are and can reach you if there's a problem, because sure. a lot of times, there's just a disconnect between the owner and, you know, people on site, and yes. so, you know, trying to bridge that disconnect when it's at a distance. Yes, I'm actually good dealing with the same thing. I have some property in Florida, and uh, I might have to uh, get a new management team because I'm dealing with kind of the same thing where you're getting charged for things that are not getting done. So it's, it's, it's a tough it's a tough balance. But I think I think once you find the good manager, it's definitely great to keep them on and uh, keep that process as automated as possible, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we started things where, you know, if anybody goes and does work on a site, they don't get paid. It's in my agreement up front. Mm-hmm. You don't get paid till I get pictures of the work done. Mm-hmm. And my neighbor swings by and looks at it, or my handyman swings by and looks at it, or whatever. Sure. And I get verification from them, and I get a picture, and, and then we pay you, no problem. Uh, but we make that we make that really clear up front. Nice, nice. Because you you dealt with the opposite side where you pay somebody to never show back up, right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I think that's those are hard knocks. Um, so actually, we're coming near the end of the podcast, and I appreciate uh, you know taking the time. But so, could you give me a little bit in terms of your biggest mentor uh, in in the industry? Who, who would you say is the number one influencer in terms of your uh, your business and your in your real estate business? You know, I'll be honest. I think my biggest mentors wouldn't want me to say their names. <laughs> oh, okay, that's that's fine. <laughs> so. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I've been very, very lucky to be able to work with some amazing real estate investors. And I'll tell you, um, some of the biggest people, you know, the, our industry is full of a bunch of showmen. 
and women, show people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of the biggest people who've really taught me a lot, they're very private, um, they're very personal, and they just kind of quietly and slowly keep working and working and building and building. And um, as a general rule, the more someone puts themselves up on stage or in front, um, you know, the, the less... The less they make, what is it that those that can't do teach or something like that? Yes. I, mean, I, I don't mean to be insulting at all. I hope that's not coming across that way. But no. I just, I, I find that people who um, are really working hard are so busy working uh, that it's hard for them to, you know, kind of get out and, and show what they do. But some of them have been kind enough to sit down around a coffee table with me and share some, some tricks of the trade. Nice. That's great. I mean, nothing wrong with that. I have some mentors too who don't want to be mentioned. And, uh, yeah, because they just feel private and they, they take care of the business. They don't want to be known. They just, you know, some yeah. of the wealthiest people I know are very, you know, drive the trucks and you would never know that they're worth, you know, 30, 40 million dollars. Um, that's interesting. Um, what would you say the most exciting project you're working on right now is? Um, we've got one, I think my first HUD loan, hopefully here, we, we haven't closed it yet, but we're working on our first HUD loan and I'm really excited to go through that process. I feel like it's going to be a good learning process. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we're early on, but you know, HUD is such a great organization and it does so much to help, um, create opportunity and, um, you know, we're, we're hoping to be able to partner with them as a lender on a deal that, that should give some great, great returns. Nice. So we'll see, but um, I'm excited to go through the learning process of that. Nice. Good luck with that. And what would you say, um, you know, especially for a beginner, um, your top two real estate book um, would you suggest to people? I mean, you got your classic, right? Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's so inspirational. Sure. And especially if you're feeling down, you know, I, I still cruise through it sometimes just to remind myself why I do what I do. Um, and, uh, you know, I always tell people, too, another great one for me was actually uh, Baby Wise, which is not meant to be a real estate coaching book. It's a parenting book. Um, mm. But, uh, it, you know, if you, if you got your household running, the same tools to run a household um, are the tools I have found have helped me run a business. And um, so, you know, oftentimes the inspiration comes from different places than, you know, a book that's sold as a real estate book. It's more like, yeah, this is just solid good advice on how to organize your life, how to motivate people, mm. you know, how to create incentives, how to build structure. Uh, and that maps right over to the business just as well as it does with my six-month-old. Nice. Wow, that's interesting. I never heard it's called Baby Wise. Baby wise, yeah. If you know anyone who's having trouble with their kids sleeping through the night, yes, get them that book. They will love you forever. Okay, great, great. I'm writing that down right now. And um, how about this? What's the number one habit would you say that's helped you become successful? God, honestly, I just keep thinking I have to improve my habits. I, you know, I don't relate to myself as successful. I have big goals and I haven't gotten there yet. Mm. Um, I, uh, probably meditation. I mean, my meditation habit is probably the singular thing that helps kind of keep driving me from one level to the next and and pushing myself further and further towards my goals. Wow. Meditation, huh? Do you do like for like a half hour, 15 minutes? I mean, that's, I need to get into more of that too, but I keep hearing about it. I just, I can't, my mind just goes to random places when I try it. So any hints on that? Because myself, I tried it, but it's so tough, especially for, you know, entrepreneurs. Yeah, I started there. I started it, you know, sitting down and, and 
falling asleep. You know, I, I was either bike racing or I would fall asleep. Like those were the two things that would happen, you know. Yes. And um, now I, I do not every day, but typically about two hours. Mm. Um, and, you know, part of the trick for me was just not having an expectation of what that looked like. So um, sometimes that was just sitting there and picking one thought and following it through its random course or focusing on my breathing. And I've tried lots of different guided meditations and quiet meditations. But, you know, I think I had a, I had an idea in my head of what meditation had to look like. And as soon as I let that go and mm. I just let myself be in connection with source and open myself up to source, um, to guide that experience on my behalf, then mm. it started to come together. Nice, nice. Oh, definitely. That sounds great. I'm um, just coming here to wrap up. And what would you say the most influential tool you use for your business? What the number one tool? It could be an app, it could be a cell phone, your laptop, a Wi-Fi. I mean, what 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 one thing really helps you? You know, with your business. Um, I love Uber Conference. Uber I Conference. Feel like <laughs> Uber Conference. Yeah. Um, it, you don't need a pin. You know, there's nothing more obnoxious to me when I'm on the road. I've got a baby crying in the back seat. I'm trying to call into a conference call. I'm going to pick up my other kids from school, and I have to memorize a 19-digit passcode to get into a conference call. Mm. Uh, and Uber Conference makes it really easy. The conference line calls me. I don't have to call it. It sends me a reminder text, and I don't need a passcode. And that, that those little things make me so much more productive. Wow, Uber Conference, interesting. Very interesting, Kara. And last and final question, um, what's your favorite quote? Or what's your favorite, um, you know, Influence that pushes you every day. What's do you have a favorite quote or a favorite? Yeah, yeah. can I give two? Sure, of course, of course. Right. Your day. So, from, from the book Baby Wise, uh, one of my favorites is Begin in the Way You Want to Go. Uh, it's similar to the concept Fake It Till You Make It, but it's different in that you're really not faking it. I don't, I don't like faking things. Um, what you're doing is you're saying, Here's where I want to end up, and how do I behave and be in a way consistent that will get me where I want to go? Mm. And if you start there and you go slowly enough and you do it right the first time, it will build upon itself and you will get where you want to go. Um, so, you know, begin in the way you want to go. Um, and then my second, uh, and not the particular order, is Warren Buffett, one of the most brilliant people I've ever, uh, ever encountered. And um, he says, you can't make a baby, some things just take time. You can't make a baby by getting nine women pregnant for a month. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> interesting <laughs> very interesting so it takes time you know, so being patient some things do yeah and you know and, and I, I feel like my whole if there was a theme to this chat we've been having it's been all about time and patience and going slowly and maybe that's because that's the lesson that i've really been getting over these last few months is you know slow down be patient everything you want will happen but it will happen in its own time, if you just keep doing the right things and being the right person, it'll all come together. Wow, Kara. Wow. Well, I think that's a great way to end this podcast. Again, thank you guys for joining Invest in Your Future. Kara, thank you for taking your time out of your vacation in Puerto Rico and your home. Um, you know, Kara's a powerhouse. You, you heard so much from her um, in terms of finance, in terms of real estate, in terms of personal growth, her struggles, and I hope you learned something. I learned so much. And Kara, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll speak soon. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You as well.